0: We like to test our audio for Beyond the Plate. If you've heard, not by counting one to 10, we like to give a little challenge to our guests. So instead of counting to 10, I'm going to press tonight. Name five dishes that I must try.
1: Five dishes, all right. Well, you got to try the abalone. It's uh, become a crowd favorite. The, uh, the nudie we do has been on the menu for the last two years, so. I think we'd get in trouble if we took it off at this point. And then our chicken, which is kind of uh, Boku store inspired. You know, it's funny. I think one of our servers is like, I never eat chicken anywhere when I go out to eat, but I tell all the guests they have to try it here. And then our pastry chef's uh, super talented. So the pretzels she does. I'm always a little disappointed, to be honest, when people are like, everything was amazing. The pretzel was my favorite thing. (laughs) And I'm like, of course. And then uh, her vacheron is a pretty uh, unique uh, dish that she's got on the menu.
0: All right. Well, you sound great. Our our audio is perfect. I don't get that very often, (laughs) so I'll take it. (laughs) Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community if you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, you know what, Ian? We're recording. Recording? Yeah, I think we're recording.
2: Recording? I don't know. Are we recording? It says recording.
0: (laughs) This episode is brought to you
2: by our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Hey, Ian. Hey, Cappy. Didn't you mention, Cappy, in a recent episode that you were creating some recipes for Martin's? Question. Did you do that yet? Your executive producer is asking.
0: Answer. uh, No, not yet. I do have some ideas. Plus... I think I'm going to incorporate Wickles Pickles, our other partner, one of our other partners. So I may use something from them too. And I may do a tasty little one, two punch. What do you think about that? I love that. I'm going to let you know. I'm going to let you know. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I'm thinking burgers, maybe obvious. Martin's is great on a burger.
2: Those two together, I've tried the combo. I'm sure you have too.
0: Yes. All burgers are good on all Martin's products. Here's a little bit more on Martin's. Martin's is an all-American family owned and operated company founded in 1955 and headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. They're the number one potato roll in America. And as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better.
2: Bold statement, Cappy, but...
0: True. It is a bold statement, Ian, and I stand behind it. They've been setting the gold standard for potato rolls since their famous sandwich potato rolls first hit farmers markets. Did you know that? And later grocery stores. These are the rolls that have helped many chefs and restaurants win top honors in burger contests all over the country. As you know, Ian, it's important to us here at Beyond the Plate that all of our partners have a strong sense of giving back to their community. And Martin's certainly checks that box. Their mission encompasses more than just baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need, both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martin's and
2: check out some great recipes, go to PotatoRolls.com. And do what we do. Follow them on social media, at potato rolls. Yes. Martin's we thank you we thank
0: you hey everyone it's Cappy want to give you a quick heads up that the episode you're about to hear was recorded live from One Hope Winery in Napa Valley cannot tell you how good it felt to be back in person so thanks to One Hope for hosting the Beyond the Plate team and to Chef Phil Tessier one more thing you have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com head on over and check out our hats tees and hoodies again that's beyondtheplatemerch.com Enjoy this week's episode. So without any further ado, today's guest is an award-winning chef, father, author, coach, culinary partner, and innovator. In 2015, he became the first American chef to ever place on the podium at the Biennial Bocusto or competition in Lyon, France, winning a silver medal. Two years later, silver wasn't enough for him. He coached the 2017 US team to take gold. You can learn more about his journey in his book, Chasing Bocuse. I'm gonna cut this intro short because we have a lot to cover. So please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Phil Tessier. Chef, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, pleasure. We like to start by giving our guests, letting them paint a picture of themselves as a kid, childhood, little Phil running around Virginia, a person's past often helps shape their future. So take us back to Williamsburg, Virginia in the eighties.
1: Yeah. So, um, born into a family, five, five kids, three bedroom house, one bathroom. The regimen in the morning was very organized out of necessity. And yeah, my dad was a postal worker, worked at the post office for 30 years. My mom had a number of different jobs, but was mainly a teacher when I was growing up and then kind of went back to school in her 40s, which was interesting as a kid to see your mother going back to school. But yeah, in many ways, people ask me, you know, what's my food heritage? You know, did I grow up smelling garlic in grandma's you know, kitchen? And somebody said at once, I very much consider myself a culinary orphan in terms of I didn't really have that deep culinary heritage growing up. My mom's mother, the first time she ever cooked was like the day she got married. I didn't go to her for too much culinary advice. (laughs) It was uh, an adventure. The one perk with my dad's job is, you know, he'd been there a long time, got a lot of vacation time. So every summer we'd drive across country. And so went to every state in the U.S., all over Canada. And so really kind of instilled in me a sense of adventure and travel and something that ironically found through the culinary world. So who cooked at home when you were a kid? So growing up, my mom cooked at home. We to this day don't let my dad cook. He's cooked maybe three times, and I can remember all of the meals he right. cooked. Did you ever cook with your mom? So I I did, and we didn't get a lot watch a lot of television or anything growing up. So Saturday morning was like the one time we were able to watch TV, and my mom was always watching cooking shows growing up. So like I would turn it on. So there was like Paul Pérignon was on back in those days, Jacques Papin, who was my favorite, and so we would just. like well this is the only thing we get to watch right now and maybe the lone ranger will come on later (laughs) on (laughs) i watched a lot of cooking shows as a kid just because that's what was happening in the house and then you know as i got a little older kind of helped my mom in the kitchen a little bit and then especially when she went back to school kind of fell on us to provide meals and things so i think by the time i was 12 13 14 i was pretty much cooking at home why did she go back to school She never finished her degree, which uh, is a point of contention with her parents. She had wanted to get certified to teach officially because she was teaching at a private school that didn't require it at that time. Ironically, after she got her degree, she never really used it after that. But I think she she wanted to check the box. Okay, so you got the cooking bug probably from seeing Jacques Pepin and Paul Proudhon in the background. Yeah, it's always something I, I loved and found interesting in that I kind of jumped into cooking for the family because my mom was working late or at school or both on the same day. Yeah, I think through my early teen years I was basically cooking for the family three, four nights a week at least what were you cooking? Uh, you know, chicken and rice, yeah. <laughs> vegetables. For a number of years, we never had an oven. So we cooked a lot of stuff on the grill. Recipes or just like throwing stuff together? Just stuff I'd seen my mom do. Eventually got into recipes. And then once I really started getting into cooking, I think my first cookbook was Jacques Pepin's uh, La Technique. And then I started getting more adventurous. And so I remember the day I decided I was going to make this thing called consomme. And I had no idea. How old were like, you? Uh, I think it was 15 or 16. Yeah. And so I was like, this sounds really cool. I'm going to try this. And so everybody's sitting down. And eat this i'm like so what do you guys think and they're like is this like egg in here and i was like yeah and then i never realized for those of you who don't know consomme is like you clarify a soup with like egg whites and then and then you're supposed to actually strain the egg whites out well i had left them all in not realizing that was uh the next step in there so it was kind of like a really bad version of a french egg drop soup so that's funny yeah i i got better after that <laughs> But is it true you used to go to the library as a kid
0: with your mom and look at cookbooks?
1: Yeah, so she had this thing where every summer we would be in and out of the library all the time, but she was like, everyone's going to go. you are going to pick whatever books you want. We'll make whatever recipe you want. And so we, I think we did it maybe two or three summers in a row. And, you know, my brother would go and he's like, let's do pizza bagels and mac and cheese. And I was like, let's do the strawberry trifle and, and the Russian pierogi. So I always had this sort of natural interest in a little bit more than the basic fare. Were your siblings into food or cooking? Not really. It was always just that thing you had to do as opposed to a hobby or anything. And yeah, it just kind of became that thing for me. I think it was around that 15, 16 year where it was like, is this a career? Is this a hobby? And and that's when I kind of jumped into the restaurant world. How old were you when you had your first restaurant job? I was 16. Jumped into the dining room. Talk to us about that gig. Yeah. So interestingly, I actually ended up homeschooling through high school. So by the time I was at the end of my 11th grade year, I actually skipped my senior year. I was taking a couple of college courses. So I worked full time all the way through my my senior year. But yeah, I jumped into I, I was really fortunate to land at the Williamsburg Inn, which is kind of a premier hospitality experience there as opposed to a McDonald's or a Denny's or another fast food space. So I, I was quickly working with people who had been to culinary school. The head chef there had cooked for the you know royal family of Norway and it was from Germany, and so I was around basic technique and the culinary kind of landscape. So that really inspired me to kind of pursue that. And I worked in the dining room and then about six months later, they, they gave me a position in the kitchen. So I made potato salad for the grill <laughs> the first day. <laughs>
0: wow, that's wow. And so at what point you did you go to CIA from
1: that job? So I was 17 when I left there. I, at that point worked there for a little over a year and a half. I started school with a year and a half of full-time experience at 17.
0: Yeah which is pretty young to go to CIA. I was there in like 2000. It wasn't people coming out of high school. Now it is, out of high school to there. It was, I feel like, career changers or people who had gone to college for yeah, a couple years. I think of years. average
1: age was like 24 or yeah, 25. Yeah. So I was definitely like, who let this guy in here? You yes. know. Why did you go to CIA? Did he recommend it? Yeah, it was basically kind of recommended by some of the, you know, alumni from there as the best school. I looked at uh, what we call the other school, Johnson & Wales, but they had a local campus and then we went to visit Hyde Park and that was kind of a no-brainer at that point. If I could afford it, that was the place to go. Did you love your time there? I did. Yeah, I worked full-time the whole time I was there in the... French restaurant because you know I basically didn't have any money so I worked in the dining room this coffee room at the time now ironically it's the Bocuse restaurant so I worked there in the dining room or in the kitchen depending on the class size because they're student-run restaurants so to paint the picture for everybody
0: at the time we were there you're either a morning student or a a, a. am or pm student if you're an am student you're going to school from like seven or eight in the morning to two or three in the afternoon and then he would go to work after that, or vice versa. You work all morning, afternoon, and then you go to
1: class from 2 to 10, or something like that.
0: Okay, tell us about Phil Tessier
1: at CIA. Yeah, so I I was there, I was there from 97 to 2000, which is, I guess we were both there at the same time. But uh, yeah, I worked class in the morning, worked in the restaurant at night, and then after, during that time, I. Went to D.C. for my internship, which was an adventure. Where would you go? There's a place called Gerard's Place. I was supposed to go with the chef I had been working for at the Williamsburg Inn. He went to the Virgin Islands. So I was a little disappointed I didn't end up there. But it worked out really well, and I ended up... I got there within three days. They were like, okay, you have three days to learn everything, which is J. It's just like all the cold, like first courses and pastry. I'd never done pastry before ever. So I was like, no problem. I was 18. <laughs> and I'm like, so uh, that was like, this guy's having a baby. Sure enough, he was gone three days later and I was on my own. It was kind of a, a sort of upscale French bistro. The chef had had a two star in France at one point. And yeah, it was great. I mean, just touched so many things, learned a ton of things, but I can tell you a ton of stories, but we don't have time for that. But you yeah, want- he, he was super cheap. This, and he would make all these promises about things. So if anybody's lived in D.C., it's usually about 90 degrees and 100% humidity throughout the summer. And he had this little Williams-Sonoma ice cream machine that we spun all the ice creams for the restaurant. He refused to buy a new one. So this was like the fifth one they'd have. And it was so hot in the kitchen, the only way to freeze the ice cream was put it in our 60 degree walk-in, which also wasn't cold enough. I'm sure people got food poisoning there. But anyways, the only place to plug it in the freezer was to unplug the freezer because it had the extension cord I needed to put in there. And he's like, You know, I'm 18, I got no money. I'm like, I'm not gonna go buy an extension cord for this place. I did that for like three months, basically. Like the balance of do it early enough in the morning, plug it in there. And so, yeah, you learned how to make things happen. That wasn't supposed to be part of the training, but it was kind of- Were you there for like the normal externship time or did you- Yeah, I was there for four months and then back to school. And then because of the time I'd spent working at the Escoffier Room at the time. I ended up staying on for a year with one of the chefs who kind of, he became my mentor pretty much there. So at at CIA, who was that? William Phillips, Bill Phillips. Yeah, Yeah. so he was kind of the America's guy. Interesting, the guy is like really into hot peppers and hot sauces, like teaching the the French class. How was he a mentor to you?
0: So you were a student, but you stayed to work there a little bit. He clearly, like had his eye on you,
1: saw your work ethic, saw your technique, saw how you work in the kitchen. Yeah, I had been there working for him at that point for a year because I'd been in the kitchen, dining room, back and forth. And so it kind of was a natural question. And I stepped into that job as a student teacher. So basically you're like a sous chef in the restaurant and this is running every day. And the class system there is every seven days you have a new class. So every seven days we'd have a new kitchen team that we had to train and hire and then run the restaurant the next night. So it was... I think in in the period of about a year, I had worked with 350 different students. In hindsight, really kind of just built into me a sense of like education and learning, ability to teach, which I still love and enjoy today. And now being at Press, we have anywhere between eight and nine students from the from really? the school at any one time. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: Okay, let's go over some of the highlights of your career post CIA. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I rattle off these places. I don't want to butcher the name, but Roger Berger's
1: Le Moulin de Mougin. Moulin de Mougin. Yeah, I went to France right out of culinary school. Didn't speak much of anything. Worked in a kitchen where nobody spoke French and lived in a house with eight other people, one American guy. And we were determined none, that we were not going to speak English so. Really? <laughs> we learned really fast. And then three months later, I was at Verger's place. That was the second place I worked over there. For those you who don't know, Roger Verger is like legendary French chef, kind of Paul Bocuse era. And yeah, it was just amazing to be there, very much reminiscent. You know, when I moved to Napa Valley, a lot of parallels between the climate, what grows here, et cetera, to there. Yeah, learned a lot of French there, made some good friends didn't get paid. Very simple life. <laughs> Eric repairs Bernadette. So that was a huge jump going from no money. I, I worked So I, I worked for 18000 a year as a student teacher at CIA. And then I went to France for six months and worked for free. And then I decided the next logical thing was to move to New York City. I think my dad gave me like $3,000 and I, I went there and earned $295 a week for a 50-hour week. And I thought it was great. It's kind of one of those things that, I don't know, I just I was doing what I love to do. It didn't bother me. And in today's climate and world, it's it's a very interesting conversation. Um, so I lived in Astoria, Queens. For a month, we argued over the paint bucket we found on the side of the road as our one chair. And I jumped into working at La Bernadette. And I'd always been sort of a, not so much a country kid, but like never a big city person. I love being outdoors, hiking, backpacking, things like this. So moving to the city was a big adjustment. And really wasn't until September 11th that I was there when that happened that that was kind of... The city kind of opened up a little bit. Everybody kind of became a little more human for about three months. And then everyone went back to (laughs) being New Yorkers. But, you know, kind of made some really good connections at that point and and kind of learned also to embrace the city. Ended up being there for seven years. Yeah. And then off to Thomas Keller's Per Se. Yeah. So Per Se opened in 2004. I went there. I had become a sous chef after three years at La Bernadette. And then I jumped into that. I was the naturally the fish cook there starting out. And I thought I knew a lot about food and I was a sous chef at a, you know, high-end restaurant in new york city and i went to per se and realized i knew like nothing about food it was really eye-opening the intensity the level of detail the thoughtfulness behind ingredients technique and just everything there wasn't a single thing that wasn't thought about and you love that yeah it was obviously super challenging probably one of my hardest moments in terms of just starting something new but i quickly learned to just You know, love that environment and the discipline that came with it, the sort of tenacity that you build into a a 16 hour day. (laughs) (laughs) And then rose up at Per
0: se and then moved from New York to Napa for Bouchon and
1: French laundry. Yeah, so I I had been at Per se at three years for that time. My wife and I, we were gonna move to France do a little, you know, two year adventure somewhere over there. Eventually I'd gotten a position as a sous chef at Per Se, which kind of kept us here. And then basically I had an option to go work at French Laundry as exec sous or chef de cuisine at Bouchon. And that was really kind of a you know, lifestyle family decision, but as well, just looking at the impact I can make at Bouchon. Like people don't really realize what's happening behind the scenes, but it's quite the overhaul there when I got there. And, you know, it was a big, we were going to come to California for two years, do the California thing, we'll go open a restaurant back in Virginia. So that didn't really work out (laughs) (laughs) this leads me to our next question
0: we spoke with chef keller and he wanted to ask you did you ever think you would be spending so much of your career in california the napa valley
1: yeah no and generally none of my plans kind of go the way they're supposed to in my mind but he always said this phrase like all good things come to california yeah it's kind of funny but we really found the community here and i think what i love about here is it kind of Marries my interests in food and and wine, and then also it's a place my family can live where you know we're, we don't have to be in the big city yeah. and can enjoy that sort of you know laid back country life a little bit more. He followed up with, what
0: has the transition from New York to
1: here been like? Well, that was ages ago. At this point, <laughs> honestly, when I first moved here, it really wasn't as much of a transition. You figure you go from a city of 10 million people to Yonville, it's just like over 3,000, and because the work was the same in terms of its intensity and demand and time like that initial transition was actually pretty similar in terms of work but it was just nice not to get out of work and get on a subway and watch the rats run around at two (laughs) at two in the morning (laughs) so it's it's just been really great for us here in the valley i think we've really learned to embrace everything that we have to offer here and now being at press it's kind of even made that even more focused let's talk about press chef is at press
0: and this is interesting to me because like even taking a step back many of you may know this or not but The French Laundry was the French Laundry before Thomas Keller. It was owned by a couple, Don and Sally Schmidt, and Thomas Keller bought it from them, and obviously it's changed. And Press, similarly-ish, Press has been there, right? And you came on board, and I guess even one step further, I forget his name, who is also at French Laundry, who's soon taking over Cindy's? Elliot. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious... What was your strategy in taking over this existing
1: restaurant, or partnering with this existing restaurant? I love to think that you think there was a strategy involved, but uh, <laughs> so I had an interesting path, you know, arriving at Press. I actually went there as a consultant. For I was supposed to be there for four months. So there's a there's a similar vein where I plan one thing and it goes a different direction, but I came in June, 2019. I was gonna be there for four months. I actually was only supposed to work 30 hours a week and my chef de cuisine of the new restaurant I was going to open in Yonville. I was gonna come in, we were gonna build a team. He was gonna run that. I was gonna work partially on this, partially on the new project. Basically within two months, I was working eight hours a week and the project down in Yonville had fallen through. Actually, Chef Keller bought that space, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we were just kind of like, all right, now let's figure out what the next steps are. Am I going to stay here? Go on to the next thing. The Rudd family was the owners of press. And so we kind of started a conversation about me staying on. What would that look like? So basically beginning of 2020, it was really this conversation of becoming a partner in the business and then opening another space. Basically my thing is, you know, I'm happy to stay here and work with you guys on this, but we're going to open another thing. And then obviously 2020 didn't go as anyone had here planned. And we jumped into what I call the gerbil wheel of 2020 and 2021 of doing one thing to the next, to the next and opening, and closing. And through that process, our relationship has grown. We also, for those of you who don't know, Press has been there for 17 years now. And for many of those years was kind of a, a somewhat farm-inspired steakhouse, a traditional American fare to some degree. And, you know, I was basically like, you don't need me to do that. In a sense, in terms of my background, it's been much more fine dining oriented. And it's actually been interesting, just kind of through really an expression of our team and the people that we've brought in, how the menu and what we do there now has really evolved into much more of a modern American, you know, more refined experience. And, you know, and similar to your example of French laundry, we're not competing with the French Laundry in terms of that experience. But I think we do have an opportunity now to really be that sort of quintessential place you go to in Napa Valley, where you have that premier experience, so to say, of the food that represents the people, culture, and terroir of Napa. And then we have an incredible wine list, which for many years has been the main draw there. I think we have over 2,000 selections now. It's pretty exciting, kind of where we're headed. And we're just kind of getting started, despite the fact of having been there, you know, last two, two years out of that two and a half years was not exactly what yeah, we were planning to
0: do there was obviously bumps in the road along the way to where you are today, whether it was in your time transitioning, I'll call it transitioning press, or just leading up to where you are now. Can you share like a challenge that got you past or got you here today?
1: Well, that's an easy question. With the last two and a half years we've endured between fires and all of the COVID challenges. But yeah, I would say the clear thing on both the positive and negative side is really the same thing. And that's really the people that have been involved. And the people we had at press there at the beginning, as much as people enjoyed that experience to some degree at the time, you know, really was kind of every man for himself you get this guy or this guy or this lady for a server you have totally different experiences and everyone was kind of retired and I tell people it was kind of a high school with a substitute teacher kind of all the things I had tried to avoid in my career working for disciplined places and things like that so that was a huge task of just trying how do you go into a place change that culture and and turn things around and I was a seventh chef in two years that had been in that kitchen. So you can imagine the the sort of aftermath of what I inherited. So it was kind of a, a massive challenge to really just take that on. And you know, we hired 12 people in the kitchen, all, mostly management team to kind of come in and change that. And then key people along the way that have really changed the dining room team. And that's really the key thing for me is that we're trying to create that food and hospitality service. And for those of you who live in the Valley, you have great restaurants here compared to you know other regions, but compared to that premier, you know, what I call the city experience, you get that polished service and, and knowledgeable staff. It's kind of hit or miss sometimes around here but the people really have been the key thing that's changed everything for us and On a similar note, working with the community here has been, I think, the biggest thing for me. Going to Press from Bouchon French Laundry, I think coming from the vantage point of being at Per Se in New York into a company here that was really the same one, you know, that was always much more of, you know, sort of national, international, kind of global mentality in terms of the restaurants and who we compared ourselves to. Whereas at Press, this is deeply rooted here in Napa Valley specifically. And the winemakers, many of you will come into our doors through uh the pandemic time period we've really just connected with so many people at so many different levels and the work we did with the boys and girls club was a huge part of that so you know it's really been interesting just i think kind of having that much more of, of that human element on sort of a grassroots level that is, has made what I do now that much more gratifying. And most people see and understand things from an Instagram photo, but to the point of the name of this podcast, there's much more that goes on behind the scenes that is, is really critical to our success. Yeah, I love that.
2: This episode is brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. Hi again, Ian. Hi, Cappy. Just wanted to tell you, I've enjoyed those uh, Beyond the Drink episodes so far, but <laughs> obviously I'm biased. So are you, Cappy, getting any feedback? I'm curious. I uh, appreciate that.
0: Glad you're enjoying them. Yes, we are getting good feedback on those. For anyone who doesn't know, we have a special series with One Hope called Beyond the Drink that airs every other week from Beyond the Plate. So we sit down with their head winemaker, Mari Wells Coyle, and she's pairing fun snacks with some of One Hope's wine. So it's been, we're having a good time. It's a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I always say it, right, Cappy? It's not just red wine with meat and white wine with fish. I just think it's so cool because it's pairing wine with everyday snacks and things that are at
0: your house. Yeah, I think that's why people love it. I mean, the first episode or one of the first episodes, we paired salt and vinegar chips with a sparkling wine of theirs, which is kind of brilliant when you think about it. It's fun. There's cool lessons in there. There's awesome history on names of wine and grapes and techniques. And Mari is a great cook herself, so she shares tips
2: along the way and
0: We're having a good time with it.
2: Love it. Well, I know it's fun to listen to or fun to listen to while, you know, thinking about the food and wine in your house, but can people buy the wine? that Mari is pairing with in these episodes.
0: Yes, yes. So you actually can't buy One Hope Wine in the store, but they have some awesome wine clubs and you could get it online from onehopewine.com. So in your episode notes of your podcast player where you're listening right now, or on our website beyondtheplaypodcast.com, we have a direct link that we share straight to the wines that Mari pairs in each episode. But here's some more information on One Hope for Everyone. One Hope is a Napa Valley winery built on hope and rooted in purpose. Every bottle of their award-winning wine supports a meaningful cause. So here's what that means. It means One Hope's commitment to high quality wine is as important as their commitment to the causes that they support. Through the sale of every single bottle, One Hope has donated over $8 million to causes around the world. So clearly it's one of the main reasons why we love them. One Hope also believes that you shouldn't have to sacrifice your wallet to enjoy quality, award-winning wines. Case in point, they have a popular Vintner collection that begins at $25, which is super affordable, and it gets delivered right to your door, which is pretty nice, too. So if you want to learn more about One Hope Wine, the winery, and to apply to become a winery member, you can go to onehopewine.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at One Hope and on Facebook at One Hope Wine. One Hope. We thank
2: you. We thank you.
0: So I said this in our episode we did with Chef Grant Ackett's, and I feel it may be similar with you. Chefs of his nature are kind of wired differently. It's a nice way to put it. <laughs> well, you have precision, you have vision, competitive spirit, attention to detail. When did a lot of this start to take shape?
1: Yeah, I think interestingly, it kind of goes all the way back to culinary school. Bill Phillips, who I worked with, he was uh, a stickler for detail. He made, we have these can openers that were attached to the table. And you don't really see those except for in hotels these days. But he made them take it apart every day and clean it. We we made these guys clean everything to a T. And so just kind of started to build that idea in your head that, okay, well, if we're paying enough detail and attention to these areas then clearly we're taking care of the important things that kind of was there in the background and then certainly once i joined with the thomas keller group you were the unpopular guy if you weren't trimming the tape with scissors and doing things exactly i mean there was one way to do this and this and when we started there the french laundry was closed down and the whole team came out so there was about 15 of them from french laundry training us and it was very much like this is the way to do all these things. And I guess what I enjoyed was, you know, I enjoy working at a high level. There's kind of three things that have always driven me. I always want to be learning, working for the best, and and being part of a, of a winning team. You can define winning in, in different ways, but that's always kind of been the three things that have kind of defined where I've gone, what I've done, and what I hope to do. So I think that all kind of came through seeing that function at a really high level, seeing what the results were that were possible when everyone had You know that similar mentality and vision and that's still the pursuit and then i think making sure we build into that that human element along the way we're not a results like results matter to us but we're not a results-oriented business
0: interesting when you train for the bokuso or competition you're always trying to do better at this stage in your career
1: how do you continue to refine that how do you continue to do better 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 it's an interesting question because i think you always find yourself in a different environment different circumstance different goals i think with where we are right now a lot of what we're doing now at especially at press is just really kind of like laying out that vision and walking through the next door our goal now is to build the structure and and mentality here where i can step away for example there's a team that understands that that's their vision now we can open that next location and continue that forward trajectory in that capacity so a lot of it comes now to really teaching and mentoring others to understand kind of what is in my head what's the vision here how can i enable them how do i delegate how do i train things like that so a lot of it comes down to really building those steps along the way that other people can understand and walk through that door themselves that that i walked through many years ago is that next project public? Uh, no, it's been a, it's been a long pursuit. <laughs> yeah, just kind of being patient to like find the right the right space here in the valley. Got it. Is there a
0: moment that struck you when you knew
1: you made it as a chef? Still waiting for that feeling. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think what do you define as making it? I mean, obviously, Boku Store was pretty incredible. You know, I think just you know the Olympics just finished, and you know you watch, you just know when these. People are competing what's going through their heads. The amount of effort, the time you've put in, everything's married to that 30 second run down the half pipe or the four laps around that rink. You know, and for us, it was all tied to five and a half hours in a kitchen. But the ability and the privilege to do what you're passionate about, what you love to do, what you're willing to work for free doing as, a, as an 18, 19 year old, and to do that for your country with that flag on your neck and that opportunity to bring that level of recognition and respect to the US really was extraordinary. For anyone who doesn't know, I mean, is, You know, this crazy World Cup style competition it takes place in France every two years and was started in 1987 by Paul Bocuse, who's uh, kind of the godfather of cuisine. But he had started this in 1987 1987 so every two years this competition takes place and we'd the best the u.s had ever done was sixth place in all those years so when we came in 2015 it was really like thanks for coming back great to have you but nobody was really expecting anything from us so when we took silver it was just really like you know kind of a extraordinary moment and then to go back in 2017 and win gold and to really kind of cement our place there in that competition. We're the only other country outside of Europe to place above silver. So it's pretty exciting to see kind of what we were able to do there. And that was definitely, I think, a pinnacle. can't say I feel like I've made it yet. And I mean, I think that's what I love about what we do in the culinary world is you're, there's always something you don't know. There's always something more to learn. I'm learning from my 20, 20-year-old 20 cooks coming in with new ideas and new techniques. And so that's the culture that... We tried to cultivate in the restaurant and in what we do every day. What did training look like for the competition? Yeah, it's, I think as you imagine with anything, you know, you start somewhere. And I think starting was the first, the hardest part. And you just realize, I just got to make stuff. And then what we basically started doing is just working on, you know, you basically you have about a year to train. So we trained for this for a year. You don't know what you're training for until about four months out. They let you know. So when I competed, for example, there was a meat platter you had to do. You had to design the whole platter, how you're going to present all your garnishes and different things. But they don't tell you what that protein is until like September for a competition in January. And then in November, they tell you what your plated dish was. So we had to do a fish dish in a month, six weeks time. And then we also had this market we had to go to the day before and there was going to be a mystery ingredient as well so four months out you don't know what it is you find out the meat you start working really intensely on that a month and a half out you're like okay this is the fish we have to work with and then literally the day before you still have a variable as to what you're walking into and it changes every year 2017 was a vegan dish that was interesting really yeah it's actually pretty good what was it we did uh like a uh, asparagus wrapped with like a mushroom and potato kind of did like a, a yeast filled basically like a shallot filled with a custard made with like kind of a brewer's yeast and a little red wine sauce some other things There's about 20 different things on there <laughs> I mean you're you're basically in training you start out kind of working on these kind of side dishes garnishes so that you're like okay whatever that protein might be this is the thing and then we started just working with duck as like a protein looking at kind of that past history of what they had assigned like Maybe it'll be a bird. It hasn't been a bird for three, four rounds. So we got guinea hen. It's kind of I like the joke. We put all of our eggs in one basket. But we basically, you know, kind of in the book, it kind of lays out. I mean, our training day basically was we were in the gym at six in the morning every day. By 7.15, we're in the kitchen working. And then especially once those last three months, four months, once you start knowing and every day feels like a week and you put so much weight on what you're going to get out of a day. So when you don't get that and when you don't get that for three or four days or even a week of time, it really feels like you're the world's falling apart. And you were training for this while you were chef de cuisine at French Laundry. So I stepped out of the kitchen at French Laundry basically at the beginning of 2014. So the year before, and I basically, I built a database for all the recipes of the 20 year history of Thomas Keller group. So we could do another podcast about that if you want, but uh, oh, series might not be yeah. as interesting. <laughs> so I did that kind of on the side while I was training for this. Now, nowadays, the team trains full-time with multiple assistants from day one. So we sort of built that model and obviously the sport has grown since then but you're basically in there every day working on things training on things and then you get to that point of repetition where basically your goal is to get there and it just feels like you plug and play in terms of what you're doing as much as you can with still the variables of what's going to come so i think the meat platter that we did we did that over 40 times in the practice runs and so it gets super intense especially towards the end but uh yeah it's crazy bro it's super fun and kind of stressful a little slightly, bit. Slightly stressful at the same time.
0: All right. So many of you may know this, but all of our guests on Beyond the Plate give back to their community in a different way. Some of them have their own charity. Some of them support others. Some of them do it through mentorship, scholarship components, hunger, you know, anti-hunger groups. And that was the purpose of this podcast was to share, as he said, more about what chefs do beyond an Instagram photo. I read that you had said, we have a responsibility to give back. There's nothing more gratifying to encourage someone to grow from a starting point and transition into a better person personally and professionally and to succeed in their own way.
1: What motivates you to give back? You know, I think it's a combination of things. I think one is you got to where you are because of the people who did exactly that, who spent the time, mentored you, took you under their wing, gave you opportunity. A big part of it is that. I think a big part for me as well is, yes, we can get accolades and everything, but these kind of come and go. And really you start to... You know, get a lot of your kind of satisfaction and excitement out of watching the young kids and such who've worked for you kind of go on and do their own thing. So, from a mentorship side, I think that's a key thing. But I think I think it's one of the challenges with a cooking competition is okay, we go and we cook food, and sometimes we get a lot of you know criticism when there's like world hunger going on and you're competing with a medium of food. And it's kind of this strange place we find ourselves. And I mean, nobody says that about a bobsled team. You're competing at this high level, but you know, hey, there's world hunger going on, (laughs) you know? And and so, you know, both between the opportunity we have and in a sense the responsibility and the attention we have on this topic, it's one of the things that really is kind of resurfaced and only more so with the whole pandemic situation. And so that became a key moment for us here in, in Napa with, The pandemic hitting, watching everything sort of unfold and realizing how many more and more people are going to be increasingly struggling through this. And, you know, one of the benefits of working with the Rudd family is the opportunity to provide resources for things like this. So Rudd Foundation supported us starting what we we basically called Feed Our Families. And we started a new not-for-profit channel, I guess you'd say, because Boys and Girls already is a not-for-profit there. But Trent, who's the director there, connected with us. We're like, look, we have chefs who are ready to work. We have resources to provide us to get started but it it was amazingly hard to connect with the connection point to get to the people who are in need
0: it was with boys and girls clubs you said
1: yeah boys and girls club was they made it really easy for us but before that we had tried to connect with other groups and it's amazing to me how even in the midst of like challenge there's still ego involved in people (laughs) and it's like we just want to cook for people we just want to help the people who Like if they, if we can put dinner on the table, like helps alleviate or a moment or puts a smile on their face. And that was really kind of the the impetus behind it. And so we started that in April, 2020. And over the next year, we had at one point, I think at our peak, we had six or seven restaurants involved and we did over 25,000 meals over the course of that time for the community. So like I mentioned earlier, like that was not just like great. We were able to help these people, but also build those relationships and longevity with that community around us. So that's really, I think now our current challenge is how do we do that in the good times? How do we continue to build that? So that's been something great on a community level. And then with Boku Store, you know, I become the sort of president of the Winners Academy and we introduced a new award called the Social Commitment Award. So it's actually a new award at the international competition that recognizes countries. So everyone applies for this as part of their application process and looking at how they're giving back to their communities for sustainable programs and things like this. So really excited to kind of get that, off the ground and we'll see how that has an impact at that level as well. That's amazing.
0: When we sat with Chef Keller, he had said, I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. I'm sure you've heard that a heard, heard hundred times. Before, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you just mentioned one of the ways you give back is through mentorship. Touch even more on how important is mentoring those around you?
1: I mean, it's so it's so critical to, I mean, I look at my path and I look at like, I could have ended up anywhere. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm a kid in Williamsburg, Virginia. I know nothing about food and all the stories we've talked about along the way, there is someone there who pointed me in the right direction, who spent the time with me to move me that way. And so I think it's imperative. I mean, I, part of my passion is, like we see here in Napa Valley, it is craftsmanship. and the attention to detail. And when you're in Europe, especially in France, it's such a revered thing. It has such a high place in the culture and in the society that if you're good at what you do, it could be anything, but there's a level of respect for that. And I think sometimes because of our culture is much more like what's new and what's this and trends and everything else, we really lose sight of that at times. And so that's Really my passion is to like build that sense of respect and craftsmanship and, and, and how do we build that in a sustainable way being there in France representing the U.S. You can even imagine all the jokes we got. We, oh, we have tons of American restaurants in our country. I'm like, oh, really? Yes. Yeah. like Subway, Subway. you know, it's like list off all the fast food places and it's, okay. hey, we want to be known for who we are, what we do. And, you know, Mentor, which is the parent organization over Boku Store USA, you know, that's a big goal of that organization that I still work with and in, in really kind of creating opportunity for young chefs. Part of my goal going forward is to create a platform for young chefs to be able to compete, whether that's in San Pellegrino competition or Boku store or other competitions. I don't like competitions as an end game because I feel like it, you lose the soul of what you're doing. Cooking is about nurturing people, the satisfaction of, of enjoying a meal together. And when you isolate that only in the competitive world, it becomes, might as well not be food almost at that point. But to be able to make that part of what a professional chef does to understand that, that, extra level that you get to when you compete in terms of your focus ability tenacity etc it's a great medium for really challenging yourself and growing your abilities your career your mentality facing everything we face through pandemic and fires etc here you know you just have a sense of like we've been through some difficult things thinking that all my stuff is stuck in customs for four days and I'm gonna compete in three days I don't know what's gonna happen next you know you find a way through and that's really kind of a key thing so you know mentoring has so many facets to it. it's not just, here's how you cook this but here's how you think as a chef here's how you act as a person and when you're in a chef role you find yourself as a not only a teacher but a counselor <laughs> and you know sort of trying to provide that Sort of North Star for young chefs, especially ones who come in and don't. They come from all over. But family is a really big part of that too. And it's really interesting how you see people come in and those who've had a strong family background, how it really puts them on a different footing. Another episode, we could uh, talk
0: all about that. Let's switch it over to a a fun speed round, shall we? Sure. What'd you have for dinner last night?
1: Yeah, uh, last night was a butternut squash soup, some uh, Gruyere sourdough grilled cheese. Yeah. At home or at the restaurant? At home, so yeah. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Uh, I think I always, you know, smell is such a strong sense that just brings you back to a sense of place. Like, yeah, it's right. pretty fascinating. Anytime I smell like squash or eggplant, like roasting in olive oil, like I'm immediately back in the corner of Roger Vey's kitchen with a cast iron pan making ratatouille. So like that smell just always has a, you know, positive effect. Truffles, obviously, bring me back to, you know, Paris and Bistro. Nice. This kind of thing. How about a smell in the kitchen you hate? Things burning? (laughs) (laughs) Probably be. This is you off in a kitchen. I think I think just a combination of ego and impatience. You know, people who are like, I am I mean, I had this young kid come in and he wanted to do San Bellarino competition. I'm like the competition guy. So he comes out for a job. I'm like, why do you want to do this? He's like, well, if I do this and I can become an influencer. And I'm like, you know, I don't think we're seeing on the same page here. But I think just people who don't have the patience to, to put in the time to learn really is what it comes down to. I mean, cooking's really about repetition. I've made certain dishes hundreds, if not thousands of times. And, you know, if you walk away, and go do something else for a couple of years and you come back expecting to just do that thing again. It's amazing how quickly we forget. And so being able to kind of build into people a sense of patience, a sense of here's the path, walk the journey, and then you'll stay there as opposed to the sort of fly with the wind mentality yeah. that sometimes you see. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Yeah, I think the, the combination of the, the creative outlet I love the opportunity we get to just create and do new things and try new things and fail and do them again and try them again and and see them come to a new place. And I think the biggest thing that we felt when the pandemic hit was an empty dining room. We feel and hear the dining room all the time and just knowing that you're providing a memory and experience for people is like really that we get a feeling. I mean, I've had other jobs where that isn't the case and you don't know what people think about what you do every day. Sometimes that's a good thing oh. <laughs> with a difficult guest. But, you know, I think just knowing that people are enjoying what you're doing. So that that sound in the kitchen of other guests there. And just, I think that combination of the team working at a high level, guests enjoying what we do, being able to provide that creative is is really, you know, Name a go-to snack in your pantry. Usually it's some kind of nuts, almonds, peanuts, something you can, you know, walk around. My wife's always making sourdough. So probably those two things. All right. You said,
0: I had a mindset that I'd rather be at the bottom of the top than at the top of the bottom. There's always another mountain to climb other than the one you're on. I've always wanted to work for or with the best, which you mentioned, to learn and be part of a team what message or messages do you have for young cooks, future chefs who are hoping to follow in your footsteps?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we mentioned a lot of them here and there. I think the main key thing, I mean, that initial quote came from Bill Phillips from CIA. That was the thing he always said. And it's really people come to me, they want to compete. They want the the easy road. How do I get there? I really want to do that. I'm like, do you really want to do that? Because I don't know if you really know what that takes in terms of commitment and training. And I think number one is just to enjoy the journey. I think my challenge right now is just to be satisfied with where I'm at and still be pushing on the next thing And, and just to enjoy that process. I think if you can't do that, I used to tell the young cooks coming at French Laundry, I'm like, this is either going to be the best job you've ever had or the absolute worst. And you won't be here very long. And and that wasn't a threat to anyone. It was just more like, hey, take off the rose colored glasses. I'm working at the French Laundry. I'm going to put this on my resume and realize like why this works. It works because everybody here is into what we're doing and it. It wants to push hard. Wants to learn. Wants to be a part of this, and we're all passionate and excited about it. So, I think having the patience to to get there and then being willing to work hard is really a key thing. So, when you find those two things in a young cook today, it's something you latch on to. Yeah, for sure.
0: Final thoughts. What do you want people to say about Press ten
1: years from now? Yeah, I mean, I think our vision is to really. I think we even say it on our a lot of our our platforms is just putting Napa Valley on a pedestal we have this amazing wine collection we have so much rooted in sort of the terroir and people of what we do whether that's what we get from the farms here locally, whether it's the black truffle mole that's from my sous chef's mom in Mexico City, but the the Mexican culture here is such a big thing that I feel like that should be part of what we do here in the restaurant as well. So in all those different forms that really coming to Napa, like this isn't at the top of the list and whether you're gonna come and have a casual experience and that's gonna be the premier experience or you wanna come here for the premier experience and we're in that middle tier of one of those nights here. So from certainly just a restaurant perspective, but I think also Really, that you know, presses where kind of a lot of the vision and ideas of what we've talked about were were really born from and that we have really made an impact both on our local community and then we're really working hard right now to address a lot of the hospitality issues that are on hand in terms of work environment, pay scale, all of those things. So people have to work for two ninety-five a week as a cook in New York City. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Chef. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks
0: again to Chef Phil Tessier. Buy more on him at philiptessier.com. To learn more about the Rudd Foundation and their work, go to ruddfoundation.org. And for Boys and Girls Clubs of America, go to bgca.org. And to learn more about all of the other projects and organizations Chef talked about in this episode, I encourage you to check out his website and click on the Partnerships tab. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Kathy's Plate or go to BeyondThePlate Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife Katie. If you have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.